I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen. This is KGNU's How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 2nd, 2013. Coming up, paleontologist and author Neil Shubin describes a fossil that he either discovered in northern Greenland or read about it in a far side cartoon. We discovered a creature that, like a fish, has scales in its back, but fins with fins, what fin webbing. But like a land-living creature, it has a neck. It has bones that correspond to upper arm, forearm, even parts of the wrists. It has both lungs and gills. It has a flat head with eyes on top, much like an early land-living creature. A real mix uh, between fish and land-living animals. And journalist Carl Zimmer discusses bringing back extinct animals that may be closer than they appear. A look at some of the recent news in science. A few weeks ago, we talked with the physicist Dr. Martin Hubber about dark matter, what it might be, and how to detect it. New research just published in the journal Physical Review Letters in a paper by a collaboration of over 270 authors provides some new evidence about dark matter based on a search for high-energy neutrinos produced in the sun. According to some dark matter theories, certain neutrinos produced in the sun would result from particles called WIMPs, becoming trapped by the sun's gravitational field and annihilating each other. This new paper reports on a search for these special neutrinos using the world's largest neutrino telescope, which is located at the South Pole and named, appropriately enough, IceCube. IceCube consists of 5,000 light detectors suspended on dozens of cables buried 1,500 to 2,000 meters deep into the Antarctic ice. When neutrinos collide with the atoms in the ice, they generate particles that produce flashes of light. By timing the arrival of the light at different detectors, the researchers can determine the trajectory of the original neutrinos and which ones come from the direction of the sun. These new results indicate that no excess of neutrinos above the expected background were detected. This puts a stringent limit on the number of neutrinos that could have been generated by the interaction and annihilation of WIMPs, and therefore tighter limits on what might be the nature of the mysterious dark matter. We enjoyed quite a bit of that sun, neutrinos or not, on the front range this past weekend. And there's some good news for sunny cities like Boulder and Denver in energy research this week. A group at the University of Calgary recently claimed a breakthrough that may make solar energy storage significantly cheaper. They developed a catalyst that could be used for converting electricity into chemical energy at one one one-thousandth of the cost of catalysts used now. The research was published last week in the journal Science. And for those of us who don't want to absorb and store the sun's rays, a group at Stanford has developed panels that reflect solar radiation. The panels not only reflect most of the incoming solar radiation, keeping buildings cool at a fraction of normal cooling costs, they also send the sun's rays back out to space rather than letting them bounce around our atmosphere to further heat us up. Details of the device were published last month in the journal Nano Letters. And a third study suggests that keeping cool may not be the main energy problem in major U.S. cities. Instead, staying warm is the major energy sink. A University of Michigan researcher found that climate control in Minneapolis, the coldest large large city in the country, demands about three and a half times as much energy as does our warmest large city, Miami. That paper was published last week in Environmental Research Letters. On the science event calendar, next Tuesday night, April 9th, Colorado Cafe Scientifique will host a talk by nutrition researcher Dr. Janine Higgins. It's titled, the skinny on resistant starch. Can it really help you lose weight and prevent cancer? 
The discussion starts at 6.30 at the Wincoop Brewing Company in Denver's Lodo on the corner of Wincoop and 18th Street. For more information, go to CafeSciColorado.org. We are stardust. We are golden. And we got to get ourselves back to the garden. You're tuned to How on Earth? The KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Within each and every one of us is the history of life on this planet, the planet itself, and the entire universe. In case you think we've jumped ahead to Alan Watts, actually, this is the theme of a new book called The Universe Within, Discovering the Common History of Rocks, Planets, and People. The author, Neil Shubin, is a professor of paleontology and evolutionary biology at the University of Chicago. Starting with what physically constitutes a human being and what makes a human life possible, Shubin surveys many domains of science to find out what we can learn about the cosmos from what's inside us. It's a fantastically broad scope, bringing together the common history of rocks, planets, and, well, people. As Professor Shubin explains to How on Earth's Chip Granditz, it is the very concept of this common history that binds all of these topics. Topics which are normally found scattered throughout disparate domains of science and academia. The common thread to these diverse themes is history. I mean, history, when you, when you see it, when you know it, it begins to change the way you see the world around you. It changes mm-hmm. the present. The present becomes altered. Mm-hmm. To understand history whether it's our bodies or planets or rocks or solar system, really is, involves integrating different disciplines, different ologies, you mm-hmm. know, cosmology, geology, biology, paleontology. So all these different branches of science come together uh, when we begin to ask the big unifying themes, the big questions about the history of life, the history of our bodies, the history of our planet. Because no one scientific discipline uh, has a monopoly on those answers. Those answers lie in the interface uh, of those disciplines. Uh, and to me, that was the exciting part about writing the book, actually. Well, that's interesting. I mean, sometimes I think people think of history as being something as an alternative to science. I'm reminded, uh, if you go to the, the CU campus here in Boulder, Colorado, on the back of the Norland Library, facing out toward uh, toward toward the quad, is uh, inscripted on the building, uh, he who knows only his own generation remains forever a child. And this is, I, I thought of this idea when I was reading your book, because when you grow up as a kid, there's a lot of things around you that you think are going to always be the way they are. The department store down the street, it's always been there. It will always be there. Phones are something that are in the kitchen, uh, mounted on the wall, and they have a dial, and the cord is about 15 feet and reaches the kitchen table. And you slowly begin to find, as you get older and older, that things that you thought of were always the same actually are not. Yeah, and it gives you, history gives you a whole new perspective on the present. It teaches you that the present is just really a special case. Mm -hmm. Um, When we think about our planet, you know, ice at the poles, right? We take that for granted. That's the planet, that's planet Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, no, most of the history of planet Earth is without ice at the poles. Um, We think of life and the diversity of life, but really most of the history of life uh, is without multicellular animals. It's single-celled microbes. Mm -hmm. And most of the history of life of multicellular animals was in the oceans, not on land. So when you think about the history of our planet, what we're dealing with today, what we're all familiar with, is a special case, Mm -hmm. is unusual. You know, it's remarkable in that way. And so, you know, seeing history gives you that perspective. It also provides 
answers or approaches to the answers of why. Why do we look the way they do? Why does the planet look the way it does and so forth? And in today's interview, we won't be able to go through the entire history of the universe, but we'll take a couple of smatterings. And I guess as the uh, Red Queen said to Alice, uh, begin at the beginning. Uh, Right. So let's start with uh, the very beginning of the cosmos and some of the things that happened very early on in the beginning of the universe that affects present day. Well, when you think about, you know, the beginning of the universe, say, at the Big Bang, where, you know, there's a single point of high energy, you know, after the Big Bang, you had a rapid expansion of space and cooling and so forth. You know, with that expansion and cooling, it came in succession the different parts of our world that we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. You know, first, the forces that attract and repel mm-hmm. uh, subatomic particles and, 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 and higher-order systems. Um, then the subatomic particles themselves, and then, you know, atomic nuclei, and then the, the atoms and so forth. So over time, over the first million years, say, in the history of the universe, in succession come the variety of, uh, of things that we, we associate with our world, gravity, forces, mm-hmm. and so forth. But then after that, you know, really when you think about the, the larger atoms that compose our bodies, you know, we're carbon, hydrogen, mm-hmm. and nitrogen, and so forth, oxygen. Um, those larger atomic nuclei are manufactured in the fusion reaction of stars. Mm-hmm. So again, when you see history, what you start to see is layer after layer of history inside. You know, the deepest layers to tie us to the Big Bang, the, 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 the more shallow layers or the, the more recent layers, mm-hmm. you know, tie us to the workings of uh, stars, the, uh, the solar system uh, and the planet itself. Yeah, in fact, I noticed uh, in a blurb on the back of your book from uh, Carl Zimmer, uh, he mentions that We Are Stardust is not simply uh, the lyrics to a song, but uh, basically a scientific fact. By yeah, today's you standards. Oh, you bet. You know, we are stardust as, star, as Carl Sagan, Neil Tyson, and others say that we, you know, in our bodies, the the material composition of us and of our planet, you know, share a history with stars, where the larger atoms inside of us were were made. You know, what's interesting in, is that you know after we're gone. After our planet's gone, those atoms will return to the universe and be part of other worlds and other uh, star systems and so forth. So it really connects us very deeply uh, to the cosmos. You know, but for me, the stardust theme uh, that Sagan was so eloquently, you know, uh, promoting Mm -hmm. back in the 80s um, was really the beginning of Mm -hmm. this story. Because if you take a timeline, you know, to the origin of the planet and the solar system, uh, the workings of the planet itself, you know, what you start to see is those layers of history inside of us that tie us to the physical world. Having read through most of your book, you've spent some of your field work in Greenland and not even the southern part of Greenland. Tell me about <laughs> what it is you were looking for and why maybe you couldn't have found it in Virginia Beach. <laughs> so most of my summers are spent freezing up in the Arctic mm-hmm. and have been so since 1989. And the, what takes us to the Arctic are the questions. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the great evolutionary transformations. So, yeah, my wife really wonders why I don't work in Hawaii sure. <laughs> or yeah. the Caribbean. I can see that uh, And the reason is very, very logical of her. Um, and the answer is really the, um, the rocks in the Arctic are the right age and the right type mm-hmm. and of the right exposure exposed to the surface to answer the questions that I'm interested in. Well, um, since you've taken a long and arduous journey there, tell me a little bit about a, a significant find, that, something that you've actually found there and why you found it exciting and significant. Well, one of the one of the joys of my scientific career was uh, back in 1998 with my colleague Ted Deschler, who's in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Ted and I had an idea to find an intermediate between fish and land-living animals. 
mm-hmm. in rocks about 375 million years old. All of those creatures that are speculated on in those far side cartoons. You bet. You bet. You know, the ones that were reaching for the baseball. And yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, so uh, we did our search, just uh, like any paleontologist would do in the, in the Internet and in the library. Uh, looking for rocks of the right age, rocks of the right type, and rocks that are exposed to the surface. And we knew the age would be about 375 million years old. And it took us to the Arctic, the Canadian Arctic. Mm-hmm. Worked there for four seasons over six years. And uh, largely unsuccessful for the first few seasons. Then mm-hmm. in that, that sixth season, we discovered a creature that, like a fish, has scales in its back, but mm-hmm. fins with fins, what fin webbing. But like a land-living creature, it has a neck. You know, no fish has a neck. Uh, and when you look inside the fins, it has bones that correspond to upper arm, forearm, even parts of the wrist. You know, it has both lungs and gills. It has a flat head with eyes on top, much like an early land-living creature. A real mix uh, between fish and land-living animal. And that discovery uh, was one of those great eureka moments that, was, that came about through a, you know, six or seven years' worth of work. Um, it was incredibly rewarding, incredibly exciting for us involved in it. Um, and at the end of the day, we have a physical object, a fossil, that I can show to you. And, you know, I could show to kids. Mm-hmm. And the kids would say, oh, yeah, it's part fish and part landling animal. You know, I mean, it's, it's one of those very um, – it, it speaks for itself kind of thing. Um, uh, and that, to me, reflects the power of paleontology, the, the power of fossils uh, to answer questions. That was Neil Shubin, professor of paleontology and evolutionary biology at the University of Chicago. He was discussing his most recent book, The Universe Within. Discovering the Common History of Rocks, Planets, and People. He's also author of Your Inner Fish, A Journey into the 3.5 Billion Year History of the Human Body. The history of evolution has taught us that life will not be contained. Life breaks free, it expands to new territories, and it crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but... uh, Oh, there it is. There it is. You're implying that a group composed entirely of female animals will breed? No, I'm, I'm simply saying that life uh, finds a way. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Jim Pullen. When a species dies, it's gone forever. Probably true. But with enough motivation, scientists may be able to return some species to life. Popular science writer Carl Zimmer has written about de-extinction in the cover story of April's issue of National Geographic magazine. I asked him whether the movie Jurassic Park is a good primer on de-extinction. It was certainly, you know, the first time that somebody kind of suggested this idea in a novel, but uh, it really is just a novel. Uh, The way that he suggested that this could happen uh, really couldn't happen, uh, and also... Uh, the kind of species that people are talking about now about bringing back are not dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are just too old. Nobody really has any clear idea of how you would be able to do that. So instead, what we're talking about is the possibility of bringing back um, extinct mammals and birds, things like that, things that actually were on this earth not that long ago. So, you know, the whole idea of um, a dinosaur rampaging around is, is really still just science fiction. A pretty good entertainment, though. Uh, sure. We, yeah, when will we see the first animal from a species that was once thought to be extinct? Well, actually, you know, it's already happened. Um, the first time someone brought a species back from extinction was 10 years ago. It was an extinct mountain goat in Europe, uh, but uh, it didn't live very long. It only lasted about 10 minutes after it was born. Um, now scientists are 
working on other species, and right now the most progress has been with a very strange species of frog from Australia. Uh, it uh, actually broods its young in its stomach and then throws them up when they're ready to be born. Um, it became extinct around 1980, and scientists have gotten as far as creating embryos, uh, clumps of cells that are dividing. They stopped dividing at some point, and they're not sure why, but once they solve that problem, potentially they will have live frogs jumping around after being extinct for over 30 years. So there have been some improvements in the technology, but there's still some way to go. Uh, what's changed in the technology that makes this pretty feasible now? Well, what, what's happened is that scientists have been getting better at cloning. So the first mammal uh, to be cloned was Dolly the sheep in 1996. Uh, and since then, scientists have gotten a lot better at figuring out what eggs need to develop and, um, and to survive. So now, actually, you have hundreds of animals cloned every year. Um, and scientists have worked out how to clone um, a lot of different kinds of animals. Uh, they can even uh, clone a mouse uh, that has been frozen for 16 years. They've gotten really good at cloning, and, and that kind of technology plus other kinds of techniques could help them to bring species back from extinction. You mentioned DNA sequencing. Uh, tell us about that. Sure. So the, the idea between traditional cloning is that you take a, a cell from an animal, and that cell has a little pouch of DNA in it, and it's got all the DNA in there, and it's all intact and arranged the way it needs to be arranged. And then you, you put that into an egg, and then it takes off and starts to grow. But uh, you don't always have that uh, luxury. So you, but you might be able to find bits of DNA um, in a fossil, uh, and so if you can find enough of that DNA, you can kind of reconstruct what the sequence of the DNA was in the animal. And once you know that, you might be able to um, engineer the DNA, the real DNA of a living animal that's closely related to make it similar enough that uh, when you put that into an egg, then it will develop into something that at least looks like that extinct animal. Would it ever be the animal that was extinct, and how do you re-engineer diversity back into species? Can these be viable species? Uh, well, you know, those are two very good questions. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think we have to kind of, um, we, I think we need a philosopher in a sense to answer whether it's the same species again. So, I mean, if you uh, engineer uh, elephant DNA so that you produce an elephant that is um, hairy, and has all sorts of other traits that were only seen in woolly mammoths because you're putting in the, the woolly mammoth genes that they need to actually have all those traits, what do you got? Um, it sure would look like a woolly mammoth, and it, it might even uh, act like one, um, but you know, it is not a carbon copy of the complete DNA of a woolly mammoth that lived 10,000 years ago. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it'll be, it would be interesting to try to think about what it is. Um, but theoretically, you could at least make animals that, were, were, that looked and acted exactly like the ones that were around thousands of years ago. Uh, in terms of a population, um, it's true that you know, one uh, individual animal, one individual woolly mammoth is not a species. It's, it's more like a, uh, a stunt. 
and you know it, it it will it will die if it's just alone without reproducing, and that will be the end of the experiment. So obviously, scientists will need to make more clones, and you know they they do actually know of ways to introduce diversity into uh, clones. Um, you can look for bits of ancient DNA that show how different mammoths, for example, had different uh, kinds of genes, and then start raising a, a whole group of these uh, of these woolly mammoths. It would be a huge long-term project. It would take decades because elephants uh, and, and mammoths grew so slowly. Um, but uh, it could theoretically be done. Well, this touches on all sorts of ethical questions. and Yeah, they're important questions. Um, I mean, I think... You know, the the most important question would be, um, should you be introducing um, a species back into the wild that hasn't been there for thousands of years? Will you be causing problems? Um, so, for example, um, you know, would, a, would some species actually start to become kind of like invasive, you know, and, and spread and disrupt an ecosystem? Um, I think that... F Theoretically, for a lot of these species, the answer would be that they wouldn't be invasive because they were actually uh, there just perhaps centuries or decades ago. It would be more like reintroducing wolves to Yellowstone, um, and you know, so so the ecosystem has not been disrupted; it's actually gone back to the way it was not that long ago. When you were doing your research in this area, what surprised you the most? Uh, I think I was surprised most by uh, how far uh, technologies with cloning uh, and, and related kinds of reproductive biology have come along. So, for example, you can take a, a skin cell from a mouse and you can apply a couple chemicals to it and turn it into a stem cell, which you can then turn into just about any kind of cell in the mouse's body. And that includes both eggs and sperm. So that alone is, is pretty mind-blowing because you could then, you know, fertilize a mouse's egg with its own sperm. And, you know, <laughs> what you produce from that is uh, who knows. And just if you think about the, the applications of that to, you know, uh, in vitro fertilization and so on, it's pretty mind-blowing. So de-extinction, as, as science fiction-y as it sounds, um, is actually just part of a whole range of different kinds of scientific research that are really going to uh, – challenge our, our notion of what you can do with biology. Carl Zimmer writes for Wired, The New York Times, and Scientific American, among many other publications. He won the 2012 Kavli Science Journalism Award for his essays in The New York Times. His National Geographic article on de-extinction is on the newsstands. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran. Shelley Slender is our executive producer. Theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Joni Mitchell and the movie Jurassic Park. Thanks to Jim for engineering, and thanks to Beth Bartell and Joel Parker for headline contributions. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 
For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Jim Pullen.